Hey everybody, it's episode 5 of Foodology Podcast. Episode I'm Logan. 5, I'm Hannah. And we're here recording. We are in Waco, Texas, in a closet. We're in our brand new apartment together, um, in our walk-in closet, which sounds way more glamorous than it actually is. It's pretty close quarters in here. But we're bonding, it's great. In our, in our new apartment, an apartment we share together. How novel is that? So novel. I mean, we won't share it long term for a few more months, but right. You know. Right. Speaking of which, uh, as you might have remembered, this is our last episode for season one. Um, I am sure you're all crying at your homes right now. It's fine. Uh, don't be sad because there's a good chance there will be more. You've all responded so positively to these first five episodes and how much you love it. And so we've heard you and your enthusiasm. And so coming back in January, we'll hopefully kick it off again and do more episodes. That's the goal. So we'll see what happens. Keep that positive reinforcement coming. In the meantime, we hope that you enjoy this last discussion, which I am so excited about. She really is so excited. I am so excited. <laughs> we have both done research for this podcast. Yes. And so... And it's fascinating, the stuff that I found and the stuff Logan has found, and we're really excited to share that with you. So what are we talking about, Hannah? What's to, all the hype about? That's a great question, Logan. Wow, I'm like so psyched. <laughs> I'm at like a, like a solid seven or eight right now out of ten. Um, today we're talking about food privilege. Um, wow, it's a big topic. It's a huge topic. And you might be wondering, that's weird. What's food privilege? Never heard of that before. What is food privilege, Hannah? That's a great question, Logan. Let me check my notes. <laughs> this is how excited we are about this podcast. We have We notes. have notes. I have an entire Word document dedicated to this episode, which is the first time I've done this, in fact, out of all the episodes we've done. But this one required the most research. So um, let me preface by saying that if you're like me, you've probably grown up in a middle upper class family who could pretty much always afford to eat whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted. You had the freedom to spend extravagant amounts of money on latest food trends and fads pretty much without a thought. But food, particularly health food, like being able to eat paleo or Whole30 or whatever it is that you do, is not accessible or affordable for many people in this country. In fact, some people might even say that healthy eating is correlated with privilege. So most of us are familiar with the term privilege as it relates to race most of the time. When we talk about privilege, we're usually talking about racial privilege being white versus being black or another person of color or an immigrant. We're usually referring to race when we talk about privilege. However, privilege can entail all kinds of things, whether you have privilege because you're wealthy or because you're male or because you're English speaking or because you're American. All of those things come with privileges. So today in particular, we're talking about food privilege and food privilege is typically connected to class privilege, which is being wealthy versus being not wealthy. When we're talking about food privilege, we're usually talking about class. Um, but privilege can exist in any situation where the ability you have to flourish is dependent on an advantage you didn't earn. So with race, classic example, my ability to get a job is higher than someone who's not white because I'm white. But 
I didn't earn being white. So, so food privilege is like that, but it's related to how much money that you have. And for most of us, it's statistically proven that you grow up to make about the same amount of money that your parents did. And if you come from a low-income family or you come from an urban community that didn't have a lot of money, usually you your parents didn't make a lot of money, and so you didn't have access to people who make large amounts of money. And because our society is so based on networking as a large form of getting jobs, a lot of the time you never meet people, if you're poor, who make a ton of money. And because of that, you can never network, and you can never get those high-paying jobs. That was a long rant to say <laughs> that... Where you come from and who your parents were largely, almost hugely impacts who you become. And so for many of us, food is connected to how much money we have, which is impacted by who our parents were, what they did. And so a lot of what we can afford to eat and not eat is related to privilege. That was a lot of information. It was a lot of information. Is there anything I can better clarify? Well, that's a lot of great information. But what does that mean for me? Why should I care? Well, what a lot of times when we're talking about food, we talk about food, whether we cognitively are aware of the fact that we're talking about food, it worms its way into our conversations, whether that's across the dinner table or with friends or in the dining commons if you're a college student or in the grocery store as you're trying to figure out what to buy for that week. Whether you realize it or not, there might be ways that it's oozing into your conversation that you talk negatively about the way other people eat, or you talk negatively about the way that you eat. And in general, I would advocate for a greater amount of grace toward yourself, the ways you restrict your eating or don't restrict your eating. But in particular, um, this is I'm going to unpack this more once I get to the end of this topic and get into talking a little bit about thin privilege but um right now I would say when you see a family that has eight kids and are driving some kind of jank minivan and they're going to McDonald's and you're saying why are you fitting your kids that crap it's probably because they can't afford a good grocery shop grocery trip and so I would just recommend withholding some judgment because I've heard those comments from other people. I've probably made those comments. We're all susceptible to it. And so I would urge you when you see those people making those choices that there's more going on behind the decision than you probably realize. And to realize that the fact that you can afford to eat produce every week is a luxury most Americans, not to mention most people in the world, can't afford to do. Like my grandfather always said, don't judge a family by the van they drive or the places they eat. Your grandfather said that? No, I just made that up. Oh, I was going to say, that's really wise advice. (laughs) Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Really wise advice coming from your imaginary grandfather. There you go. So even though it may not apply to you directly as far as you how you live your life, you might still want to eat paleo. That's fine. We kind of do that. You can't help the fact that produce costs a lot in our country maybe because you want to eat it and it is good for you. But I think that it's more about taking into account the way other people eat and not using so much condemnation and judgment when we talk about the way other people make their food choices. So a lot of the language that you're using now seems to assume that our listeners are of the kind that can eat paleo if they want and are not of the kind that are being judged. That's true. So can you give us this point of view from the other side, from the side of not the people judging, but the people being judged? Do you have anything to say to them? 
Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to assume. I don't want to assume the demographic of our right. listeners. You're right, and that's a fair. That's a fair thing to say. I think I assumed that because I know most of the people who listen to our podcast are probably Facebook friends of mine or yours or follow us on Instagram. And from what I know about those people, most of them seem to be in the same class economically that you and I are in. Right. Um. So I'm talking to the people that I maybe know personally that listen to this podcast, but. Outside of that, if people have stumbled across our podcast that I maybe don't know personally or are listening to this and have less money than I actually think they do, in which case, my bad, <laughs> um, I would say you have to feed your family. You have to feed yourself. I don't know what it's like to be you. You might really struggle with having a lot of self-respect about the way you feed your family or you might already know the truth that you're doing the best you can with whatever you have. Um, but either way, know that I respect your your resilience to raise your family in a way that feeds them, even if it's not feeding them in the way that you wish that you could feed them. I'm sure there are a lot of things you wish that you could do, like get regular doctor's appointments and dental checkups and be able to go to the emergency room without paying $3,000. Like, those are all luxuries. And so I, I'm sure those things are really stressful and hard to navigate if you don't have a lot of money. So... I want to honor you and honor that that's your experience. And so, um, and I, that I don't know what that's like. And so I want to be respectful of that while also realizing I've never had to live that way. And I'm really grateful, but also I respect the people who are able to make it work however they can and know that there are people who care and, um, there are people who are creating community gardens and are trying their hardest to make better resources for homeless people. And I don't, I don't know what it looks like in the community that you live in. Maybe they have great resources and maybe they don't. But uh, know that people, that there's hope, I think. I hope there's hope. <laughs> and maybe that sounds like false hope, but uh, you do the best you can with what you have. Yeah. It's true. So something that I have wondered myself on grocery trips um, is why is say organic food so expensive or eating healthier so expensive? I don't know why. You want to care to explain, Logan? So I did some research, found some interesting things. First off, it seems that there is a theory among consumers, consumers being those of us who go to the grocery store and buy consumables, that mm, healthier foods are more expensive and the more expensive foods are healthier, which turns out not always true. Let me give you an example of that from this study that I read about. So these researchers took a group of people and were like, choose the healthier option between A and B. And so let's say A was an $8 roasted chicken wrap and B was a $6 balsamic chicken wrap. Which one would you say is more healthy, Hannah? Uh, the roasted chicken wrap just sounds healthy. <laughs> well, turns out most consumers also chose that option. Turns out they were wrong that the what? balsamic chicken wrap is more healthy, even Shut though it's cheaper. Up. And so consumers would choose the $8 option thinking, oh, it's more expensive, must be healthier. Now, when they switched the prices, made the balsamic wrap $8, consumers chose that one because it cost more money. 
So, sure, a lot of times that might be true, but also I would encourage you if you're trying to eat healthier and are in a financial place that you can do that, look at labels, do some research. You might be surprised that maybe you can find cheaper options that are just as healthy, if not healthier, than the things that you would prefer to buy. All that aside, though, why are organic foods more expensive? Turns out I found a list of reasons, and a couple of these are boring, and a couple of them I actually found pretty interesting. So first, using no chemicals equals more labor. Makes sense. Uh, number two, demand overwhelms supply. Turns out in America, it's a big thing to buy organic now. So True story. Finding organic farms that can supply that demand is getting harder, um, which drives the price up. Classic economic principles right there. Uh, three, higher cost of fertilizer for organic crops. Makes sense. Uh, crop rotation. So for those of you who might not know a ton about farming, um, conventional farmers can regrow the same crops on the same fields over and over again and not have to worry too much about depleting the soil because they use artificial fertilizers and they don't have to worry about pests getting like ingraining themselves in the soil because they have pesticides. But organic farmers, since they can't use such chemicals, um, have to rotate their crops between fields, which is more work. So there's that. So I have a question. Yeah. Why don't Why don't you think more farmers just become organic farmers if there's such a high demand? You know what? I wonder that same thing. And there's a few more reasons. It seems that organic farming is more expensive, so that might be a turnoff for farmers and conventional farming, non-organic, is still pretty economically stable. You can grow a lot of food if you can use chemicals. And so, hey, it's the way to go for a lot of people still. Um, another thing, post-harvest handling cost. It's just higher with organic stuff. Um, organic certification actually costs money to be organically certified. That little USDA label on your food Interesting. costs money. Um Seven, higher losses due to bugs, etc., and the cost of covering those. So since you're not using pesticides, if a bunch of grasshoppers come and eat your corn, you can't kill them with pesticides because you're organic. So you lose those crops, and that costs money. Um, eight, organic food grows more slowly uh, with the lack of fertilizers, with more conventional farming methods. Mm. And nine, subsidy, subsidies. And here I'm going to read a quote, actually. In 2008, mandatory spending on farm subsidies was $7.5 billion, while programs for organic and local foods only received $15 million, according what? to the House Appropriations Committee. So that Why? was in 2008, so this could be different. But it seems like the government is giving more subsidies to people that are not organic. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so this just brought out a few interesting things to me, that if we need to push for making better food available to people in the U.S. and push for legislation that can make that easier for farmers to do. And that's a real issue. Maybe not as important as some other issues going on in the world, but it is a real issue and connected to a lot of other issues. And connected to food deserts, which I think Hannah's going to talk about in a few minutes after I say some more things. Oh. <laughs> uh I want to just let you know there to not jump right in. Oh, yeah, so thanks I have for one the more tip. thing to say. Uh, a few 
hot tip, one hot tip here with a couple parts. If you do want to buy organic, you can save some money by buying some things non-organic that really aren't as harmful for you. Um, this is just a list from the Environmental Working Group's Shopper's Guide to Pesticides. Um, so these following 15 types of produce are lowest in pesticides, so go ahead and give those a buy, even if they don't have the USDA label on them. So here's the list. Onions, sweet corn, pineapples, avocado. Avocados are pretty great, pretty healthy option. Asparagus, sweet peas, mangoes, love mangoes, eggplant, cantaloupe, kiwi, cabbage, watermelon, sweet potatoes, grapefruit, and mushrooms. So if you've been shelling out that extra dime or so for getting the organic version of those, guess what? You might not have to. Hmm. That kind of felt like a news segment. But now I'm going to hand it over to you, Hannah. What do you have for us next? We're being very informational today. But that's because there's so much on this topic to cover. And so we want to give you, like, all the best information that we can possibly offer you. And one of the ways that we do that is by doing research. And so here is what we've learned. Um, so I want to I wanna also add this in response to all everything you've just heard about um, demand and supply and expenses. And you're probably f- maybe feeling helpless about like, I don't understand. How can I, what can I do to make this any different? I know that some of this is unavoidable if you're a consumer and not a producer. Organic foods like produce and meat are more expensive to purchase and if you don't have the money you're gonna buy things that are cheaper like grains, dairy, canned goods. However, these things are lower in nutrients so low-income families often find themselves in the situation of eating unhealthy food in order to survive. Ramen is a cheaper purchase than avocados. (laughs) That's true. And while, of course, you want to eat well, the point is is not for you to buy less of those things to create a lower demand. It's just for you to be aware and for you to start having some conversations and thinking differently about this topic. And when you can, be having it more at the forefront of your mind even during elections and understanding what your legislators have to say on these issues. It's becoming a greater and more prevalent issue as we wrestle more and more with the concept of food deserts, which I'm about to get into right now. But first, Logan, could you give us the definition of food deserts? I would love to. The definition of food deserts are parts of the country vapid of fresh fruit, vegetables, and other healthful whole foods, usually found in impoverished areas. This is largely due to a lack of grocery stores, farmers markets, and healthy food providers. So when we think of food deserts or when they're typically talked about, I don't know if you've heard of them very often. I've heard of them like a couple of times, enough to be familiar with the term. And they're almost always used in reference to big urban areas with little access to produce stores, which makes sense in theory. However, when I went on the government website, where they created a map of food deserts created by the Let's Move initiative by Michelle Obama. Bless her, she's the best. Um, What I learned from that map was actually the largest food deserts are not in urban areas. On the government food desert map, some of the largest food deserts are in southeast Oregon, 
northeast Minnesota, southwest Texas, and huge chunks of Arizona and New Mexico. But in fact, they're all over the country. There's not a single state that doesn't have a food desert somewhere in it. Food deserts are huge and everywhere right now. Which means that this is not just like a far off, oh no, if people start to starve issue. We see things like increase in obesity, increase in heart disease, and a lot of these things are largely issued, largely created by the fact that people don't have access to clean meat and good produce. Which leads me into the next point. Um, A disproportionate amount of overweight people tend to be poor. According to the American Diabetes Association, people in America who live in the most poverty-dense counties are the most prone to obesity. So even things like fat shaming are related to food privilege because in our food and exercise economy, it's expensive to be thin. That's true. Think of this for a minute. Do you ever see a Whole Foods in the bad part of town? No. Didn't think so. Food desert right there, ladies and gentlemen. We've done this thing, and this is the part I want to get to that's more discussion than just stats. We've thrown a lot of information at you. We're going to try and keep this podcast hopefully a little on the short side so that you can listen to it again if you want to sometime because there is a lot of content in here. But I do want to get to this bigger issue of seeing healthy eating as a moral issue and that Mm. fact that we can't – it is – not only factually inaccurate to do that because of things like food privilege, but it's also incredibly cruel when you know how closely tied wealth and food are together and that people who are obese and poor often cannot afford to be thin. And so to place moral moral context on those people, to say they are lazy or undisciplined because they are fat is And a completely unfair response, especially because knowing the context of food and how hard it is to get healthy food if you're already poor. That's a really good point. What do you think it would look like? And this is a huge question. So feel free to take a second to reflect. What do you think it would look like to take morality off of thinness? To, To look at someone and say you're not less disciplined than me or um, less caring than me just because you weigh more than me. It's easy for us to say like, oh, if you're predisposed toward being bigger, okay, whatever. I mean, some people are still bad about that, but what would it look like for us not to shame people because of their weight for assuming that they're somehow somehow morally inferior because they're larger? I mean, that'd be a lot healthier society or a healthier way to view society. I think that a lot of times the judgment that we give to people we view as overweight um, is not helpful to them if they are on a journey of coming to terms with their overweightness or accepting themselves as a loved human being, um, even if they are unhappy in their current body or happy in their current body. Um, But I think... Judgment is not encouraging. It's not helpful. And so, I mean, honestly, I wonder if there was less judgment about being overweight if we would have fewer overweight people. Hmm. If I mean, as contradictory as that seems. No, it makes sense. I think there are two categories of overweight people in our society. Well, three, probably. 
um, people who can't afford healthy food, people who biologically have have a hard time being thin. Not everyone is supposed to be thin. Yeah. So I feel like that's important to mention too. Some bodies are just different from other bodies. Not every peak person is supposed to be a size two. That's not your best self for some people. Look at the rock. (laughs) He's not a size two. No, he's not. Um, And then there's a third category of people who use food as a way to hide. Yeah. Um, And I think that's a really different, I think we need to separate that category of people as being equally legitimate and equally in very like shame oriented, like as in shame has really been internalized and shame has been internalized in all of us for in a lot of ways. But um, a lot of people who struggle with weight in that category are people who, um, who eat as a way of coping um, and then feel shame, but then feel like, I don't know how to change, but I hate myself, but I don't know how to change. And because there is such stigma around being large, you almost feel worse. When I, I put on weight when I was having a hard time with, when I was struggling with my eating disorder. And I remember I was never obese, but I remember when I was eating as a way to emotionally cope and then feeling awful, absolutely awful and hating myself. It was because I was so afraid of being fat and I want that to change. I want, I want it to, the shame that came after the way I, like what I would eat was not constructive. It was not motivating. I didn't, it did not cause me to pull it out of myself. It, it did not help me to grow. It was completely useless to me. It only pushed me further and further. And it wasn't until I learned to accept myself as I currently was, um, not the size I wanted to be, not the weight I wanted to be, whatever, that I was able to genuinely want and care about myself to eat well. Those are people who are usually not motivated by financial issues. Those are usually people who have emotional issues that they bring to eating. Yeah. So that category in my mind is different. And then there are the people in the category two, the people who's, who has to do with their body shape and body type, um, that's impacted by genetics. It's impacted by um, – but those people might, might not be impacted by their socioeconomic class either. Like your body's predisposed either way. Um, but the people in group one, the people who are impacted by – money and finances the most um I think the I think the point is that you can't group people I don't think it's appropriate at all to look at a person who might be overweight and say you must be overweight because you're poor that's an awful thing to do we are not recommending you do that (laughs) I think the point is maybe to not group people at all not assume which category they fall in and instead to simply say, it's okay the, the way that you look unless I have a personal relationship with you and you've asked me to help you for some reason. But other than that, it's okay that you're not thin. I think that that's actually the most significant thing is to be okay that not everyone is thin. Yeah. We are all different people. <laughs> that's true. We are yeah. all different people. So said a lot of great things yes. this episode so far. A lot of things have been said. <laughs> Let's bring it full circle. Okay. And give our listeners one sentence concerning food and privilege. If they are to take away 
anything from this episode that they can take to maybe change how they live, change how they view people. What is what do you want people to remember most about food and privilege? I know that's a super vague question. But like we've said a lot. What's yeah. what's at the meat of it? <laughs> Assuming makes an ass out of you and me. All right. <laughs> Foodology ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Because I feel like all of the negative things that come out of this, talking like there's no one in the room that's experienced what you're talking about, making making snap judgments about families in a fast food drive-thru, shaming obese people that live in low-income communities or judging them in our minds, Um, even if we're not verbally shaming them, I look at people and I judge them. We all do. But I think that's, I mean, I know this isn't like a spiritual podcast, but I think that's like sinning in my heart against a person. Yeah. And I want to cut back on that. And I think that hopefully this information provides some reasons, some motivation to, to make less assumptions. Yeah. Because I think most of these negative things start with an assumption we make about, other people um and why they look the way they look or why they're doing eating the way they're eating and i think we just have to like nix those yeah like just don't assume that you know why that person is doing that because it could be one of a million reasons and you have no idea yeah so so maybe i don't know i hear a lot in in some communities in particular like my home community people saying that like poor parents raise their children terribly and irresponsibly and let them watch whatever they want, eat whatever they want, blah, blah, blah. I think we just have to nip that in the bud. That's completely inappropriate. Yeah. So I, so hopefully this is like a step in that direction as well as just really informative for you. I mean, Logan in particular shared some really helpful, interesting facts about um, ways to spend less on your organic produce, things that don't need to be organic, um, th- reasons why organic produce is so expensive. I think those things were really practical and really helpful, and I'm glad you included them. Thanks, Hannah. Let's stop making assumptions and start making some actions. Let's uh, catchy. <laughs> just uh, like if you live in a densely populated area. Um, maybe you know a part of town that is most likely a food desert. Maybe you can find a way to get involved there. Start a community garden to help some people. Maybe, I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of things that can be done. Um, Like any other huge injustice in our society, these things don't have easy answers. Yeah. There's not something that you can do that's like really easy, takes 10 minutes, with little to no cost to yourself. That just doesn't exist when you're trying to enact justice in a society or a community. Those things are laboring hard work. But what you can do in this more than any other thing is donate your money. Yeah. There are a lot of things where you have other options. You can donate your time. You can donate something else. But in this, I would say nothing is more helpful than being willing to donate money. And yeah. I, I don't know probably a lot of you who listen to this are college students because we just graduated and are no longer, oh, I'm still kind of a college student, but Logan's not. 
Um, and so we're coming out of a phase where we definitely had a mindset of being like as stingy as possible. And we're still kind of in that because like student loans and all that stuff. But you can afford to give $10 to a place that's working a lot to to com- to be able to work in a food desert and take care of a community. And I think that's a really, really great use of your $10. Yeah, there's lots of great organizations out there. And also, as Hannah mentioned earlier, um, like as American citizens, we have a vote. And so a lot of times the people that we are electing can make a change in this area as well. So maybe call up your elected officials and be like, hey, are you doing anything about food deserts? Or try to elect new people that know something about that. Um, I personally am guilty of not being as politically involved as I could be. But that's something that's important and should be considered. So, Okay, so I just did a quick Google search to find some organizations that are battling food deserts and communities. And one I just found is called the Food Trust, which... Um, says that its approach includes improving food environments and teaching nutrition education in schools, working in corner, with corner store owners to increase healthy offerings and helping customers make healthier choices, managing farmers markets and communities that lack access to affordable produce, and encouraging grocery store development in un, under in underserved communities. That's a great place to start. If you don't you can donate to foodtrust.org or simply do a Google search and see what's out there about com- combating food deserts in your communities. Yeah. Whether you may be aware of it or not, but there probably is a food desert near your town or in your town. You might not even know about it, but they exist. There's a map of food deserts that I'll tweet out with this podcast, so look out for that. Great. <laughs> All right, well, great episode. A lot of information. And it's been great doing this podcast with you. Yeah, this is the official end of season one, like Hannah said in the beginning. Hopefully we'll be back come January or February. Yeah, make sure and let us know if you want us to come back for a season two. Yeah. Love, we love hearing from you. You can tweet at us. You can Instagram at us. You can email us. We really do love hearing from you. Uh, my Instagram and Twitter Username is at Logan J. Evans. Also, our email is foodologypodcast at outlook.com. And my username on Instagram and Twitter is Hannah Schaaf. As you've heard in all previous four episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, etc., etc. You know the drill. So if they've listened to episode five, they've probably found us somewhere. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm Logan. And I'm Hannah. And this is Foodology Podcast. The Foodology Podcast theme music is by Jazar. Check him out on freemusicarchive.com. Music